the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good, or TGC is... No, TG... TCG. Wow. Well, but TGC, but that's uh, the Gospel Coalition. I should have rehearsed this at least once before trying to say it to other people. I'm never going to do that again. That's that's not going to stick. But you can find us all over the place on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, at Common Good Talk on Twitter, 1160hope.com slash the common good. You can give us a phone call, 312-660-2594. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you're just kind of joining the show uh, past, uh, Pastor and I. Pastor and I are both Brian's. <laughs> Should I just walk away at this point? It's is a this, tough day already. Is this a sign of things to come? <laughs> Pastor and I are both Brian's, professional Brian's, full-time vocational Brian's. This is just our side gig. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, what I was wanting to say there was at that we're both... At least speak for a living, you know? Yeah, right. This is all I have, man. This is <laughs> this is it. I can't build things. I don't think of things. We're both pastors, though, and uh, one of the things I think is interesting about doing a show together as pastors is our churches are different, our politics are sometimes a little different, our theology is a little different, but we are kind of trying to take a deep dive into like, all right, what does it look like to exist in the world as as Christians or as people of faith or people exploring faith? And if you've been around Chicago for the last year or so, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with uh, some of the stuff that's happening at Willow and some of the stuff that's happening at Harvest. Yep. And we've tackled it a couple of times, but I want to take a, a different perspective here. Scott McKnight, who uh, we both really love and appreciate, and he uh, just, I think, has a lot of wisdom, yeah. particularly in these areas. Uh, he wrote an article for Pathio, said, Willow Creek, what's a pastor? And let me just read a little bit, and then we're going to kind of dive into the nitty gritty. Um, he says, I've had two stints as a professor in a seminary. Schools designed to educate those in the church and especially those called into various ministries. Two decades of teaching career. My first stint involved a uh, amassing learning curve about pastors, while the second stint at Northern Seminary is what I think is my sweet spot. I love teaching students uh, who love the church. While we have plenty of students who are not going to be senior or teaching or lead pastors, the pastoral calling transcends those adjectives. So in my classes, we talk lots about churches and pastors and the pastoral calling. This all led to my book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church, which made my ears and eyes sensitive to Willow Creek's summary description of what they are looking for in a pastor. So I'm going to pause right there Mm -hmm. and just kind of get your read on McKnight and what you think his perspective is going to be about some of Willow's job description. Yeah, it's uh, clearly uh, Scott McKnight wants to take very seriously the question of what is a pastor uh, and when what should be um, the uh, the characteristics that make up a pastor. And and McKnight also has some history with Willow Creek, right? Like he was very involved there at one point, I believe. Uh, and especially in the last year or two when when uh, things were kind of um, 
uh, shifting, if you will, at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels and all that went on there. Uh, McKnight was very vocal and in speaking into this, and a lot of people were going to him to ask him to speak into this, uh, and he wrote some of the best stuff about it. Uh, and so now, as you said, Willow Creek has posted the job description uh, for uh, their senior pastor, and McKnight rightfully so is, is pointing out some things about it that are problematic and are indicative of kind of the mega church, uh, but not then it seeps down into all the churches and what we're looking for as pastors. And I think what he's going to call out is this idea of pastor as CEO right. versus pastor as pastor. Right. And the problems that he sees with that. And so this isn't just a Willow Creek thing, although their job description, in my opinion, is problematic. Uh, but it's indicative of, uh, especially in our area here, a lot of the Willow stuff has seeped down into the churches in yes. Chicagoland, whether you know it or not. Yep. Uh, and now that churches are having to wrestle with this. So this job description, I think McKnight does a great job at highlighting it and going, hey, do we all think these are the characteristics that make up a great pastor uh, and that uh, Willow Creek should be looking for considering what they just went through? So I, this is what I love about McKnight, the way he sets it up. He says, God's design for you and for me, for all Christians, for the whole church is expressed with living brilliance in Romans 8. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is what he says. The design of God for all of us is to be co-morphed into his son's very image. I call this Christoformity, a slightly more accurate expression than Christ-likeness, which I think is brilliant. Conformity to Christ, comorphing into Christ is Christoformity. If this is God's design for us, then this is absolutely the design of the pastoral calling. Pastors, first and foremost, are called to pastor people toward Christoformity. This theme shapes all eight chapters in Pastor Paul. I develop these themes, friendship, siblings, generosity, storytellers, witness, world, subversion, and wisdom. Uh, all as instances of the theme of the pastor as culture makers, as those who nurture a culture of Christoformity. So two big ideas. Pastors pastor people, and pastors pastor people by nurturing Christoformity. So then he kind of takes a turn towards Willow Creek, and he says, and I would affirm, uh, all of Willow Creek's elders need to stop right now and read <laughs> Eugene Peterson's The Pastor, a memoir. It's yes. a book that you and I have referenced a number of it's times. fabulous. I highly, highly recommend not just church leaders and laymen to actually do it. I think everyone needs to read it. But then he then he has the job description posted, and what I think is fascinating, and I, I won't read through all of it. You can read the article on Pathios, but he shares uh, some snippets from the job description, and he says, now, here are some observations yeah. about the job description. First, no Jesus, no Christ, no Bible, no gospel. That is, in the main words, they are buried into tiny words, or they are not there. So he's talking about this word cloud that he's developed. Yeah. There. Second, the focus is Willow, as in we are Willow Creek. Also, Barrington, Chicago, and South, South Barrington. This is an advertisement seeking someone who can carry on the Willow Creek brand. Mm. I'd love to know just what you think about those first two observations, because I think that we've touched on this before, that the the issue of pastor as CEO, I don't think is from the pits of hell. I just think it's no. a misalignment. It's, a, it's a, a misordering of values and priorities, especially when it comes to the pastoral role, which can be really, really dangerous, as we've seen. Yeah, and I, my guess is, is if we had an elder here from Willow or someone who helped make this, they would say, well, gospel and Bible and Jesus, those are assumed. And I think that's the problem. Like, they're not assumed. Mm. And instead, we put above it leadership and organization and vision. And instead of like McKnight saying, no, no, the number one driver needs to be Christ likeness and a passion for the gospel. And uh, this brand is what he's saying is great. 
because these huge churches do become a brand in and of themselves. And it's not carry the banner of Christ or carry the banner of the gospel, but carry the banner of Willow. And I, my guess is these were not written with this in mind. Mm. It's just been the culture for so long that, that, that it just comes out. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we both live in a space where there's a lot of buzz around words like leader, right? Yep. Um, which I think are good, but the word leader shows up like far fewer than the word servant throughout or scripture. Shepherd, At the very yes. least should, I think, give us pause. And when he talks fourthly about Willow Creek wants a leader who is both theologically grounded, uh, but that person does not need to have a theological degree. He's a seminary professor yeah. and I think is like poking at some of the issues with saying, hey, we'd like it, but it's not important. And what what are we communicating when we devalue uh, seminary work or seminary experience or theological depth? Uh, in the local church expression. I wonder, do you, do you think that's a real issue or is, is McKnight, uh, I don't know, is he reaching too far in your opinion? No, I think it's a, it's a huge issue because, uh, and I didn't go get my MDiv. I've got a master's degree, but, uh, but education has been trumped by, like you said, leadership capabilities, charisma, and these are good things. There's nothing wrong with charisma. There's nothing wrong with leadership right. and vision, but we've seen those break down uh, and, and lead also without some of that education to churches that aren't theologically grounded. Uh, and, and they begin to look more like business with a CEO at the top. And so I think McKnight's great here. He says one thing that's cringeworthy in the job description is to be able to motivate and inspire high capacity men and women to use their gifts to further the vision. He says, what about the 95% of us uh, who aren't high capacity? Oh, and yeah. so he's just saying there's language. I think the biggest thing he's saying is there's language that they're still using that created the culture that ended up just collapsing a year or two ago. And he's, he basically ends it by saying, I really wish the elders would revisit this. Well, and hopefully they will. Maybe they will. Maybe hopefully they will. writings like this and people talking about it will actually uh, challenge the leadership to think uh, maybe a bit differently than they have in the past. Yep. And that's, that's always kind of our hope. Well, coming up next, opposing Georgia fans, honor wife of coach who died of breast cancer. We're going to talk about this story coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Remember when I said that Brian and I were both professional Brians? I sure do. <laughs> that was funny. That was a fun memory. <laughs> I'm sure that'll make it to the vault somewhere, somehow. That's going to end up showing up in a way that I don't want it to. I do feel like there's a collection of audio that's being uh, that's being collected. That That is just... Uh, <laughs> That is just our the, just the dumbest things we've said. What's your favorite snafu so far from the show? Mm. The one that you can say over the air. <laughs> the one that I can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Although what you did earlier today about were pastors who are were. Well, how did you put it? professional Brian's? Pastor and I are both professional Brian's. <laughs> that was a good one. No, not mine. I want to that know what your favorite snafu is. I, I did argue yesterday in yesterday's show that I you were like, oh, you misspelled, you missed, uh, said the word Montana. And I was like, no, I didn't. And then you guys played it back. And I definitely said the state of Montana. <laughs> Which I, I think I like Montana, better. Montana, junior. Tra- Wait, one more time, last John. One out of Mon- last one out of Montana, junior. Tra- <laughs> last one out of Montana, <laughs> like junior. Tra- it's like a, like a spicy Montana. Montana. <laughs> and so I, what I like about it is I was so adamant that like, no, I didn't get that you wrong. You really were I surprising. Not You're wrong. not really an aggressive person. but And uh, then it got played back. I went, oh, never mind. <laughs> okay. Your response was not that calm either. That's This, this is a false. This is fake news. <laughs> it might have been swearing. Going I was going to say, John, was his response? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, well, I guess I did. <laughs> now I've, turned, I've turned to 80-year-old Southern woman. <laughs> Oh, well, bless his heart. 
Anyway, we've derailed in a real big way. Um, mm-hmm. Here's the story, and I'm going to ask you to kind of fill us in here. The, Absolutely. The picture, though, already is like getting me misty-eyed. Opposing Georgia fans honor wife of coach who died of breast cancer with, quote, pink out. What's going on here? Yeah, so Arkansas State coach Blake Anderson, um, he is uh, his team was playing Georgia this week. And if you know anything about early season college football, there's these games where Basically, the big school will pay the small school a good big sum of money to basically come, and it turns into a scrimmage. Everybody knew George was going to kill him, right? The game ended up, I believe, being 55 nothing. And uh, but, but that wasn't the main part of the game. Arkansas State coach Blake Anderson, uh, his wife Wendy, died last month after a two-year battle against breast cancer. And as she was dying, he took a leave of absence mm-hmm. from the team. Uh, and this was his first game back. Uh, so... Um, some people at the University of Georgia. Now, these teams have nothing to do with each other, right? It's not right. like they're rivals. Right. Uh, it's not like they have any connection with each other other than they were going to play at this one game. Right. People at the University of Georgia uh, heard the story about Wendy Anderson. You know, died tragically at the end, age of 49. They've got kids. He's the coach. Uh, two-year battle of breast cancer. And they decided, In usually at Georgia, uh, if you look at their stadium, it's all red. Right. Okay? Everybody wears red because right. that's Georgia's color. But instead, they decided this became kind of a social media kind of groundswell. Uh-huh. Everybody wear pink yeah. to honor his late it wife. Wild. It was wild. And he had nothing to do with it. Arkansas right. State had nothing to do with it. So when you when you look at coverage, and I would encourage you to look this up, when you look at coverage of the game, it's exactly that. It's all pink. Yeah, it's There's wild. a picture on the article we're looking at where it says, uh, you know, usually we're, we're like these college guys will wear no shirt and they'll paint like go Georgia or something. Or right. They're painted themselves pink and it says, remember Wendy. Uh, and so uh, just so many, obviously it's a tragedy, but so many good aspects of, um, you know, so many things put into perspective, right? Like, again, it's not a big rival, but they had, the Georgia people didn't need to do this. Yeah, they they didn't, and it had a profound impact on Coach Anderson, Blake Anderson. It had a profound impact, I'm sure, on his kids, and it kind of just put a lot of things into perspective. Well, I, I want you to actually hear from his mouth, sort of uh, Coach Anderson's response, because I think it's really moving. The fans, and I'll just say you know, just publicly that um, just one classic moves I've ever seen. Uh, hard to. Hard and truly prepared for something like that. So I would say thank you to all those that showed up today. Wearing pink or thinking pink, you know, just uh, I don't know my wife and they don't know me and they didn't have to do it. And it's, it's uh, very grateful, honored, and uh, honestly overwhelmed. So. so, like, clearly just moved by the whole thing. Yeah. And, I, and I, I mean, he's not, he's not that old of a guy. His nope. wife. She was 49. Oh, my. I mean, that, you know, so, like. Not to mention, he's he's just having to deal with just unthinkable circumstances, unthinkable emotions. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine, like, what do you think was going through his head when he was there actually in the stadium just looking at a sea of pink, like, realizing that he's he's getting the support from people he's never even met before? Like, what what must that have been like for him, do you think? I actually thought about that. I wonder... I feel like, and I hope to never have to put myself, like, this is one of these guesses that I hope to never have the first-hand right. knowledge right. to be able to answer. Uh I would guess there was a lot of dueling emotions in him, right? I would guess on the one hand, he probably felt standing on that sideline such a profound loss. Yeah. Because he talked about, I watched a a kind of, they did a segment on College Game Day on ESPN about their family and about the story. 
and like you can't watch it and not just be crying like you're just right, watching this right and there was something like uh you know how we you do a funeral and what you always one thing i'd like to talk to the people about is like there's going to come a moment where you get back into quote unquote normal life and realize it's never normal again yep. uh, but everybody else goes back to normal um I would have to think walking on that sideline was another one of those moments. He talked in the piece about how he knew where his wife always sat. She was like the team mom. Like there was she was an aspect of this team that was deep. Right. Uh, And so my guess is that walking out on that sideline for the first time, there was profound loss. Like it was like another moment. On the other hand, I would have to also think that seeing all these people in pink, seeing his kids who are a little older now, but right. um, seeing all these fans being around his team, there was probably also a sense, and I'm projecting here, but if I were him, I wonder if one of the feelings wouldn't be, you know what? I'm going to be okay. Like we're going to make this huh. like I do. I am supported. Right. I, my guess is they were dueling emotions of like unbelievable sadness and loss and feeling so well supported that, that, you know what? Uh, I hate this, but it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it. Why do you think stories like this resonate with us? Like, it's the kind of story that if you're just mindlessly scrolling through your Facebook feed, you're going to at least pause. You're going to say, oh, what is, what is this about? Even if you're not a sports guy, even if you're not from this area, even if you have no history or experience with breast cancer, it's the kind of story that I feel like all humans everywhere, at least at some level go, yeah, we need more of that in the world. Yeah, because death and tragedy are, are, are a reality of the human of the human experience. Right. And so we get so worked up about football games or whatever else, just everything. And then these moments remind us as to what is kind of really important and and the things that link us. Like, I think it's a feel good story in a way because it's like, okay, this is people at their core showing kindness. They didn't need to, right? Like, uh, and not to say like they, they didn't need to, as in like, Oh, they, they shouldn't have, or what they just, this wouldn't shouldn't have been even something that was really on their radar. Like right. they could have said, "Oh, we feel bad for the coach," but there was this groundswell of support that make that reminds you of of what is best about us as human beings. Yeah, like loving each other, caring for each other, holding one another up. That doesn't take away the tragedy, right? Right. And I think we all look at stories like this and go, "I hope that if some tragedy like this hits my life, I've got this sort of support, like yeah, this sort right. of thing." I think that's why they resonate with us because in the midst of a lot of badness in our world and a lot of tragedy, we go, okay, there's still good in humanity that we want to hold on to and that we want to celebrate. Yeah. And and maybe you're in a situation where either you're suffering or someone, you know, is suffering and it doesn't have to be a stadium full of support. Exactly. You can just be a friend to somebody. I imagine honestly, even somebody listening right now, maybe needs to hit pause or turn off the radio and text someone or call someone. If someone's been on your heart for a while, like I think, one of the things that these stories remind me of is that life is just way too short and that's so cliche, but it's, it's true. And I think we often put off that phone call, that text, that email, Oh, I should swing by because you know, we say things like life gets in the way. Let's not let life get in the way. Let's, let's be the kinds of people that come alongside those. Even if we don't even know what they're facing, Mm -hmm. my guess is you could be having a great day and a text from a friend saying, I'm praying for you is still going to be welcome. And I think that's, at least for me, that's a good challenge that I want to always kind of face. Absolutely. Coming up next, we have an interview with author and pastor, Dr. Michael Youssef, who is the founder and president of Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef right here on AM 1160. But yes. Brian, do you know, he's also authored more than 30 <laughs> books, including Life-Changing Prayers and The Third Jihad, his newest book, Counting Stars in an Empty Sky, Trusting God's Promises for Your Impossibilities. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yes. Coming up next on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're one of those people, we thank you so much for listening and subscribing and reviewing. That actually all does help us out. And I think maybe maybe my favorite part of this job is we just get to meet and talk with yes. so many interesting people from so many different perspectives. And I feel like I've learned so much in the few months that we've done this show. And I'm thrilled to have on the phone right now Dr. Michael Youssef. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much, Brian and Ian. Good to be with you. Thank Thanks you. For Likewise. Me. Appreciate it. One, one of the things we've been doing is, uh, is having our guests introduce themselves to our audience in whatever way they want to. So how would you introduce yourself to the Common Good audience? Well, I'm a 71-year-old servant of the living God, mm. and uh, I don't think uh, any 71 uh, should be allowed to have as much fun serving <laughs> Jesus for the last 50 years <laughs> as I have. And uh, I, I, I really love the Lord. I, have, I was born in Egypt, uh, mm. but 50 years ago I left and lived in Beirut, Lebanon for a little while, then uh, mostly Sydney, Australia, where I've done all my theological training, wow. then came to California, from California to Atlanta. And so that's really basically my, uh, my life in a nutshell. I started the church 33 years ago with a handful of people, and God blessed and uh, then God really dragged me into everything that I have done. He dragged me into, into media. He took me to radio first, 32 years ago, then television, none of which I really was even interested in doing. But uh, I, as I tell folks all over the world, I said, he looked down and said, who is the most unlikely guy who speaks with a, with a funny accent that I can really use? And he said, whoops, I found one. And... Uh, and then he, you know, that's, I am just honored and privileged to be along for the ride. Uh, this is uh, everything I do is for the Lord Jesus and for His glory, and uh, nothing, nothing is more important for me in my life than to lift up the name of Jesus. It is my mother, that of John the Baptist. He must increase, mm. I must decrease. That's really my introduction. In a nutshell, oh, that's maybe the best introduction we we've ever had. Going. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, yeah. uh, and so, uh, your new book just came out, "Counting Stars in an Empty Sky." It says, "Trusting God's Promises for Your Impossibilities." Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that book? What is kind of the heart behind it? What is the message sure. of this book? Sure. Uh, you know, we—it's not going to be a surprise to you or to your audience uh, that we we live in a microwave uh, society mm. that. Everything has to be done in uh, 25 seconds or 25 minutes, mm-hmm. and we uh, basically give up if it goes any longer. We have such a short attention span. So I lift up this man who is revered by so many millions of people as a man of faith, and I showed how he waited for 25 years mm-hmm. uh, to see God fulfill his promises. Uh, I know that in my own life, uh, God has... Uh, done things that I waited for 10, 11 years. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you, as both pastors, have seen that in your own lives, in your own congregations. And so I am pleading with people that if you really want to experience effectiveness for God, if you want to experience fruitfulness in your life, hang on the promises of God, meet the conditions of the promises of God, and mm-hmm. just watch Him out. He's, he's going to be doing some amazing things. And uh, and I know that is experientially, personally, and I'm testifying to the power of God and, and the fact that He is a faithful God, always keeps His promises no matter how long it takes. 
that is what I'm showing in the life of Abraham. God is the one who initiated the covenant. Mm. God is the one who kept the covenant. Mm. God is the one who guaranteed the covenant. And then he walked him all the way through it. He did some detours along the way, yeah. and uh, from Haran to, to Egypt to here and there, but nonetheless he kept coming back uh, to building an altar in Bethel, and, and, and God just kept on uh, uh, ministering to him, and, and he kept repenting, turning, and, and God fulfilled his promise. Today, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, when God said, uh, to Abraham, your seed in the singular, not seeds in the mm. plural, is talking about Christ. So in Christ, uh, the promise of Genesis 12 has been fulfilled, that mm. in him, all the families of the earth have been blessed because of Jesus, and that we are part of these stars that God told Abraham to start counting when he didn't have one son. One son. Mm. He looked up to the heaven, counting stars. I said, you mean all these people? <laughs> Are you going to give me all these people? I said, yeah, but I'm going to start with one. Yeah. And through Christ, here we are, uh, billions of people who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. It makes me think of the, the Dallas Willard statement to John Ortberg that we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. Mm-hmm. He saw hurry as this great enemy of spiritual growth. And you talk about waiting on God in a culture that expects instant results. And we, you talk about God's silence, which I think is a really important topic. And, yes, and in yes. the book, you mentioned five silences of God. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, if, if they all come from the Scripture because uh, that's how I, <laughs> I have no other book or no other idea. I am not very smart. I just like <laughs> to stick by the book that, uh, that God put together, His Holy Spirit put together. Hmm. And, uh, and, and as I looked and studied the Scripture, I found that uh, there are times when God is silent, and, and those silence are always have a purpose. Um, you know, there is the silence of judgment. Uh, there is, uh, of course, uh, the silence of, uh, you, know, wait, you know, God just wants to make sure that <clears throat> we are going to hang in there and not just say, give it to me, God, in five seconds or less, and then I'm out of here. Right. Uh, is the silence of God's mercy. There's the silence, you know, this is, as I said, the testing, and then the silence of waiting. And there's the silence of love, you know, but God's just kind of waiting until we stop splashing around so he can uh, uh, start working. And uh, and I've experienced those, uh, uh, you know, in my own life. But even if I didn't, it doesn't matter. Scripture's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But I can testify to the fact that... Uh, that you know that when God is silent and it's so frustrating at times, I was, yeah. I was related. We've been married for over forty-eight years now, and I, I related to a couple. You know, when <laughs> it's disconcerting when one one spouse is give you the silent treatment. <laughs> yeah. and yes. It makes yes. you nervous. Yeah. And, and 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 you relate to our walk with Christ, and um, and people get very disconcerted about about the fact that uh, you know God is silent. Why? What's wrong with me? Have I done something wrong? Is God angry with me? And we start asking all these questions. Uh, in reality, they have no they, they have no uh, basis in reality. Yeah. Uh, God is silent for a reason, and. Um, and, and that is why I really wanted people, uh, when they pick up this book, you know, Counting Stars in an Empty Sky, that they realize, you know, God has a purpose, even in the silence, even in the disconcerting times, even when I don't understand what's going on, even when I, I, I'm puzzled uh, by what God is doing. He has a purpose. He's working yeah. his purposes out. 
Yeah. So I'm wondering in the last minute we have here, uh, just kind of thinking about you and your ministry, like you said, you joked before you're 71 and doing all these different things, writing books and on the radio and preaching it and leading the church. Uh, any plans to slow down or are you just running hard, more books to oh. come and just loving life? Absolutely never. There's no <laughs> such thing as retirement in the Bible. And, well, I mean, I've, I, he can take, I mean, I, even the breath that I just drew right now is a borrowed gift from him. Yeah. He can take that. And I, I live in a high rise and I look up to heaven every morning. I said, if it's today, mm. you call me home, I'm ready. I have my spiritual bags packed mm. any day I can go. Uh, there's nothing I need to take care of. So I tell him every day, I'm ready to go. But if you spare me one day, I'm going to serve you regardless. And so, you know, uh, nobody can guarantee, but he has <laughs> given me some more energy now at 71 than when I was at 51. Wow. I was overweight and huffing and puffing. Now <laughs> I work in the gym and I run three miles a day. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand it, but uh, he does. And, and therefore, I'm, I'm his. He owns me. Lock, stock, and barrel, and so I'm, I, you know, for for me, that even the concept of putting my feet up doesn't yeah. even make sense. Oh, we good. we started ten years ago. We started a television station in Arabic. It's in hundred and ninety million homes in the Arabic speaking world, wow. and I'll be in Cairo in a few weeks' time. We're having a huge celebration there in the city of Cairo of the tenth anniversary of Kingdom Set. In fact, your viewers can go to it. If, any Arabic-speaking person who wants to go and check it out, Kingdom Sat, and um, and now there are a lot of Arabic-speaking people in uh, in Chicago. Um, now, it doesn't mean that we don't have uh, other people from the U.S. and England, but uh, but all translated into Arabic, and has now become the premier television station that people feeding uh, the saved and converting the lost uh, in the Arab world. So, I've, I've got a few things that. He keeps getting stuff coming. <laughs> and, I love we it. We just launched uh, 2025 Vision, where we are praying that God will give us one million souls between now and 2025. Wow! So this is all kind of uh, his stuff, and I go along. For the ride. Oh, I love great. it. Well, Dr. Yusuf, thank you so much for great. joining us. Again, the book is called Counting Stars in an Empty Sky. You can learn more at CountingStarsBook.com. You can also listen to Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf right here on AM 1160, Monday through Friday. Dr. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Today. Oh, what a pleasure. God bless your ministries, both of you. Thank Likewise. You. Appreciate it. This Our has been brother. The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Music always startles me. It does. What makes that? Like, what is the instrument there making that noise? Oh, it's a professional kazooist. Are you being serious? I like, can't tell I'm when you're not making. being serious. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's such a weird sound that I don't know what's making that sound. Yeah, it's all synthesizer. It's just synthesizer. Yeah, there's no way that's a because it's a weird sound. And you're like, I don't know what what that is. <laughs> I'm sure that's what they were going for. Yes. Let's talk about that song for this segment. Let's just speculate about the show and what their story was and why what that do you think particular they were feeling when they chose that <laughs> uh, sound. Alarmed, probably. <laughs> that's what I would feel. Well, welcome back to the show. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're listening via podcast, why don't you hit pause, why don't you like it, subscribe to it, give a little review there, and then hit that share button. That really does help us out a whole yep. lot. And uh, I teed it up a little bit. I want to talk about this article out of Relevant Magazine. It says, love God, love people is more than your Instagram bio. So <laughs> this is a phrase that... 
you know, we use a lot in the church, love God, yes. love people, love God, love others. It's a, it gets tossed around a lot. Um, and I, and I think it's important. Absolutely. It's, you know, the great commandment. I think it's summary is totally important. I have some thoughts about how we reduce it sometimes. Okay. Where it, it ends up becoming more of like a slogan or a tagline rather than like uh, an ethos or a way of living. But mm. this person's perspective, I think is pretty interesting. And, uh, I'm going to kind of skip down a little bit. It says, when Jesus was asked by a scribe what commandment is most important, this was his answer. And then he references Mark 12, which is where uh, the great commandment is found. It says, Christians today often simplify this to love God, love people. Love is the key ingredient needed to effectively evangelize. However, it is necessary to fully understand how to love as God commands us to love, rather than how the world wants to be loved. The difference is key. I often see two sides of the spectrum when it comes to Christians trying to teach the gospel to unbelievers. Those who try so mm-hmm. hard to plant a seed, they forget to care for it and end up breaking it. Or those who just show the ground their their bucket of seed and either never end up actually planting anything or toss the seed in the air and hope something happens. Love is not at the center of either of these approaches. Taking a love-first approach means the Christian must, must care for the ground first, carefully mm. plant the seed, and continue cultivating that seed where it is planted. This is how God invests in his relationships with us. To lead people to Christ, we must be reflections of him. There is no better way to teach a gospel of love than to show even a fragment of what God's love is. So I'll pause right there. What do you what do you think of this perspective so far when it comes to this very, very common phrase of loving God and loving people? I think it's, it's really interesting because uh, everything about when you, you uh, when you often hear that phrase taught, love God, love people, there's very little talk about yourself, right? It's all out there, right. all out there. Right. And so this, uh, this saying the Christian must care for the ground first, carefully plant the seed. There, there's a care for people. Oh, later on, he's going to talk about when we're talking about loving our neighbor, it's as yourself. Like you've got to have some sort of love for yourself that's right. reflected. Right. I think this is good. I think most of all, uh, this is important. Uh, I, I like what this author's doing from the concept of it's not just an Instagram bio. You already referenced it. Like this is an easy thing to tattoo on your body right. or put in your Instagram bio. Really tough thing to live out. And I, I like what he's saying here too. He says without love for God, there's no reason to evangelize. Mm-hmm. Like that, I thought was a pretty a pretty concise, yeah. succinct way to say hey, some some of us are evangelizing out of some sort of guilt, guilt. or duty, but there's yep. no real actual love for God. And I think people know that, right? So yep. He talks about a true love for God, like. The love that he commands us to have enables a sufficient understanding of God and his gospel, a transformed perspective mm. on life through Christ, and an unrelenting drive to work towards his kingdom. Then he goes to the love yourself. This is where the love God, love people mantra starts to become inadequate. We've mentioned this before. Jesus clearly states that one must not just love people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Loving someone as yourself is shallow when the love you have for yourself is shallow. That's so good. And I think that this is unfortunate because Christians, I think, sometimes tend to be the worst at talking about self-care, yeah. talking about margin and talking about expectations, because sometimes, especially in like professional vocational ministry, you know, when people's souls are at stake, it's like that's the perfect furnace, I think, for people to may- maybe hyper obsess or or over aggrandize yeah. what their role is. And that's what leads, I think, to a lot of pastoral burnout. They're like, well, the weight of not just this organization, but people's eternal destiny yep. hangs in the balance. Of course, I'm going to work 90 hours a week. Of course, I'm not going to take any time for myself. Of course, I'm not going to, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this is, totally. This is part of why I think Christians struggle in the self-care area. And we miss the loving your neighbor as yourself. If your love for yourself is shallow, then your love for others is likely going to be shallow. Too. And, and not just shallow, but I've, I've often thought... Uh, 
oftentimes we teach love your neighbor as yourself. It's from the assumption that we all love ourselves a lot, <laughs> like that we're pretty self-centered. And oh, but interesting. Then you start to realize, no, there's a lot of people out there who if they actually love their neighbor the way they love themselves, that wouldn't be very loving. That right, wouldn't be right. very much of a positive thing. Right. And I'm somebody who uh, <laughs> I tend to have a high view of myself. And so <laughs> when I read that verse, it's like. Wow, that's a high bar for loving other people. Oh, interesting. But I always, I've begun to realize in the last couple of years, that's actually a low bar for some people. And the first part of the conversation mm. is Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's talk about the as yourself part before talking about the neighbor part. Because right. if you hate yourself, if you've got, if you were kind of self-loathing right. and I tell you, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, you either need to fake it. Like, okay, I, I'm supposed to love myself right. this way. So I'm right. going to love my neighbor. Or... Uh, you're just not going to love your neighbor well because you don't love yourself well. That was a kind of a light bulb moment for me teaching mm-hmm. this within the last couple of years going, oh, not everybody thinks of themselves really highly. Not everybody loves themselves. Not everybody's uh, totally self-centered and like, oh, aren't I the best? Right. Uh, so we got to deal with that. I think that's a really important element to that, that uh, that for most of my life has been skipped over. Well, and this is why I think the order of this article is important, because we talked you know, about the loving your God piece, the loving yourself piece, and then he gets to the love your neighbor. This is the culmination yeah. of the previous two steps. We've received the love of God and loved him back, loved ourselves in our identity in Christ, and now must direct that love at those around us. Without first loving God and loving ourselves, this step, like you were saying, can be mm-hmm. quite daunting. Love can turn into a chore. It's often conditional when love comes from within ourselves alone. When we choose to love through what we've received from the Holy Spirit, loving our neighbor becomes natural. Our thoughts are consumed with the well-being of others rather than our own comfort. Mm-hmm. Our words have the intent of encouragement instead of seeking affirmation. Our actions are constantly building others up instead of serving our own self-interest. The fruits of the Spirit are on full display. It attracts attention and those around us will inevitably feel loved. I think that's important because like you were saying, so often we get this order way reversed and sometimes you're right. The the motive of loving other people is to feel good about myself or to make people like me or to feel important or to feel valued. Like there's all sorts of reasons. I think that we sometimes will show love to others uh, that we don't let anyone else know. But when we, recognize and we receive the love of God yeah. in a real tangible way, by the way, not just in a sort of intellectual ascent, cognitive exercise, but like I'm known and loved fully and completely. And that is a gift. It's a gift given that I couldn't earn when we really are transformed by that. I, I so fully believe that will affect the way that we love people and even our capacity to love people because without those first two steps, yeah. you could probably, like you said, you can fake it for a little okay. while. You could. Yep. I think a lot of people probably yep. have. I don't think that's um, I don't think that's inconceivable, yeah. but eventually that runs out. Right. Yeah. Eventually, like I just don't I'm, I'm only giving of what I'm able to have. And I I think that that is a, a recipe for disaster. And we, we preach those sermons, too, about like f- always loving and serving out of the overflow of what's going on in your own heart right. or, or the things God's doing. But but it's a question is, how do we practically live that out? And th- I think this is so good, man. I think. It's something I, I feel like uh, you and I have talked before about evangelism and the ways maybe we were raised or kind of our preconceived notions of it. And it was like, it's just something you do and you kind of get feel right, shame if right. you don't. Uh, and there wasn't no there was no tie in to it necessarily of being an overflow of what's going on in your own soul. And right. And I, it, you know, I suppose there's a danger in this of becoming too self-centered, but I don't think that that's usually where we fall on this. And, yeah. I, and so I think there's a really good uh, thought process in here that says, hey, a lot of like receiving God's love and, and loving yourself, not not in a self-centered way, but of who God made you and what God doing. 
that's the best way to then fuel to go love other people the way Jesus taught us to. Well, I love how Carter ends. He says, uh, with a re-centered attitude, our approach to evangelism is naturally much different. Opportunities to share the gospel are much more organic. Friends and acquaintances are more willing to listen. And the love of God is clearly on display for all to see. Talking about Jesus no longer feels corny or forced because genuine love that can be felt as being used instead of a story about love that sounds like it belongs in a children's book. And I, I got to be honest, I'm inspired by that. I want my life to look more and more like yes. that. And yes. uh, I think that's a good call for all of us. Well, coming up next, the Baptist College Handbook authorizes full access to students' social media accounts. We're going to unpack that a bit and see what's going on there, see if you agree or disagree. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're alive. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, who is jiving right now. Mm-hmm. This is the first time you've jived to our intro, maybe ever. I'm trying to love it. I'm trying to love the intro. <laughs> I'm loving it. You're just dan- <laughs> brought to you by McDonald's. Uh, are you just trying to dance your way into liking there it? There it is. Yep. Are there other yep. areas of your life that that's worked? I, I should try that more often, though. I don't, like, oh, I, don't I don't like Brussels sprouts, but when I move my shoulders like this, <laughs> I bet you it would work. All of a sudden, it tastes like Twinkies. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us through one two six six zero two five nine four. Plus, wherever it is you get your podcasts, if you like, subscribe, review. That does all somehow magically help us out. And uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed about the show, honestly, is coming across articles that I don't know. I otherwise would have seen the terrifying part, though, sometimes, and we've talked about this before, sometimes you'll see something and the thought is, ooh, we should talk about that. And then yep. the next thought is, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know what to say about it. Which is kind of <laughs> freaky, right? And sometimes yeah. we just go for it. And I think this is one of those stories. So why don't you fill us in a little bit of what's going on here, this this Baptist college. And uh, I'd love to know just some of your thoughts. Yeah, it just says uh, Southern Baptist College in Louisiana uh, has a social media policy that a former professor uh, has highlighted uh, in this college as it says quest to balance free speech online with enforcing institutional codes of conduct. So like a lot of Christian schools, they have codes of conduct. When I went to Wheaton, I don't know if what you did at Judson, but at Wheaton, we had to sign what's called the pledge, right? I won't mm. do this. There's a couple of things I will or won't do. You know that going in. Uh, a Louisiana college social media policy adopted in July seems to design to silence criticism from students, faculty and staff. That's according to this professor named Russell Meek. He's a former professor. As you continue to read this, just in all fairness, he seems to have a little bit of an axe curtain to grind with the school because sure. he's no longer there. Uh, the 2000 word policy published in the student handbook includes provisions that require certain students to give school administrators access to their personal accounts, as well as demanding all students report inappropriate information posted by classmates. So how did the president of Louisiana College go about? How did they defend this? He said, uh, we particularly want to protect students from being numbered among those who either lose a job or never interviewed because of unfortunate or inappropriate comment on their social media platforms. Above all, we want to educate the whole student in the maturity of intellect and maturity of character. And I believe our social media policy is appropriately motivated in such regards. The professor, Mm. uh, on the other hand, Russell Meek, he said the social media policy is part of a pattern of behavior that seeks to keep people from speaking freely about what is happening at the college. So he's Mm. going, no, there's a whole different reason 
uh, that they're doing this. Now, what becomes interesting is uh, this article goes on to point out that Louisiana College is by far not the only one who has these kinds of uh, social media policies. In fact, some very similar ones can be found at the University of Houston, East Texas Baptist University, uh, Ochida Baptist University, Mississippi, Mississippi College, Stetson University, Carson Newman University, and the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Mm. Uh, Mary Hardin Baylor's policy, in fact, mirrors Louisiana College's verbatim in some sections. And so it raises this. You've got a private college saying, nope, well, this is what we're going to do. You come to our school and you're going to sign on to our rules. On the other hand, man, does it feel really invasive to be like, you come to our college, we've got full access to your social media platforms and all of this. Uh, and and just seems like a pretty invasive uh, uh, move there. And so you've got the one professor going, nope, they're doing this to try to control their image and control what people say. You've got the president of the college saying, nope, we're trying to protect the students. Mm. Uh, it's our job to protect them and educate them. Uh, feels kind of messy. It feels it feels uh, pretty gray. Curious about your thoughts on it. Well, I'm I'm wondering because you know you and I when we went to uh, undergrad, none of this was even a conversation because it didn't exist yet. If you were 18 now and you knew this was the policy of a school you wanted to go to, would you still go? I would not. No. Why well, wouldn't? And Just some people it might, invasive. Yeah, some people might be surprised by that because, like I said, I went to Wheaton where they told you certain things oh, right, you couldn't right. couldn't could not do. But man, this one feels like uh, pretty big brotherish to me. This yeah. one feels pretty like. Uh, I want to read your Facebook page. You know, I want to access, I should say, to your social media accounts. We're going to review them. And the cre- the one that even puts it over for me is like, we want you to tell us when you see classmates mm. who are posting things that might be questionable. Uh, man, that would probably I don't I'm not saying they don't have the right to do it. It's a private institution. They have the right to do it. I just wouldn't feel comfortable being a part of it. That feels too restrictive for me. Some people enjoy that restrictiveness in college or by or parents sending their kids to that. I just don't think that would be for me. Do they actually have the right to do that? I think so. I I don't know. I don't know where the First Amendment comes in versus a private institution. I was going to say, yeah, I feel like I hear that tossed around a lot. Like, well, it's a private institution. They can do whatever they want. Like, well, they can't do whatever they want, actually. They still are beholden to many of the restrictions that public institutions are. That's that's why I find this tricky. I actually just listened to a podcast earlier this week called The Hidden Brain. Mm. And they had one. It's called You Can't Hit Unsend, How a Social Media Scandal Unfolded at Harvard. It's really, really well worth a listen. It interviews specifically one kid who uh, got accepted to Harvard. And it's really great storytelling. So it's giving you all the, you know, all the backstories. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant kid. And uh, they were talking about these incoming freshmen had this like private Facebook group. And they'd have different chats or whatever. And then I think it was on WhatsApp or something else. They were just exchanging jokes as a way of kind of getting to know each other yep. before the school year started. And there were, it kind of took a really dark turn. And then there were some really racist memes that were shared and some really sexist memes, just some really kind of cruel awful disgusting stuff and the school somehow got a hold of it and wow. um withdrew their application so they i mean it was so it's this guy now talking about this altering the rest of his life and he speaks about it you know pretty candidly and he sounds like he's got contrition but maybe it's just because he got caught exactly it's, it's because though the school they were kind of essentially saying we we don't support or encourage yeah. or condone behavior like this and they ha- they wouldn't have known if somebody hadn't at least Tipped them off. Outed somebody yep. or given them access. So in a case like that, do you think, all right, well, the school's justified because what this kid was doing actually was pretty deplorable. 
but mm. that also now it now it's such a weird precedent though it right does. like so how do you know it's not minority report we can't know in exactly. advance if someone's going to behave poorly or not so to make a blanket policy like hey we you know what for safety's sake we have access to it all yeah. I, i'm like you i would just say well then i'm not gonna uh, yeah. go here <laughs> yeah so to answer your question before reading down in the article this is at christianity i did it again <laughs> christianitytoday.com it says free speech laws generally so i don't know where they don't but generally do not apply to private schools like religious colleges. And this guy, uh, an attorney said private universities have and should have broad discretion to uphold religious standards for conduct by staff and students, both on and off campus. There is little reasonable expectation of privacy about one posts on Mm. the internet. Mm. And so there's that. Um, Yeah. It just, it, it feels just to me, I mean, it feels really restrictive and you know, they can do it. And and I have always been struck by the people who go to these schools and then just try to get around all the rules. Like, why go to the school in the first place? Yeah, right. Um, Maybe they were, you know, appeasing some parent. Or exactly. Exactly. But uh, it just feels like this is a a losing proposition for the school. Mm. Right? It just yeah. it feels like a losing proposition. And uh, just because they can do it doesn't mean that I think they should do it. But there's lots of doing this. Like, do you think. Like, is it the role of the school, in your opinion, to be shaping kids in this way and protecting kids? Or is there something about college, about about letting them spread their wings a little bit? I don't know. I wrestle with that because, I mean, like I said, it is a private institution. It stands for something uh, specific. I, I think shaping most certainly is a part of it. In fact, that's a key word uh, from my alma mater, Judson University. You know, shaping is a very integral part of their mission. So I guess it's not a question. I think every institution would say, yeah, we want to shape. I mm-hmm. guess the real question is how what Mm -hmm. what methodology or approach is appropriate or too far reaching which is probably as broad as parenting styles like i i don't think we're necessarily going to get to some sort of empirical this is right this is wrong but for me though it is an interesting trend though that and i love how the the article ends it says for any christian institution contemplating its social media policies diamond offered this advice in attempting to restrict the speech of students and faculty on social media, you can easily create a controversy that will substantially amplify their statement and gain them notoriety. You may yeah. not like what your students say or how they represent your institution, but by attempting to restrict these actions, you are just fanning the flames. Yep. Which I could go both ways. That's yeah. that's very akin to the argument like, oh, if you make it illegal, more people are just going to keep doing yep. it. Yep. So the argument I don't think could always be, well, then don't make laws. We have laws for a reason. Yeah. But he's got an interesting point. It's the only reason that you and I are talking about it, right? Like I don't somebody think highlighted it. Yeah. Somebody highlighted. Somebody was fanning the flames, and uh, and here we are trying to wrestle through it. And I'm not still sure how I feel about it, yeah. but I think at the very least, if I were 18, I'd probably find a different school. <laughs> that well, is true. Well, coming up next, my buddy Aaron Nequist, uh, who has so many brilliant things to say about worship and the church and liturgy. He mm-hmm. tweeted something about some of our modern expressions of worship that I really want to get your take on because I think he has some real wisdom here. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Find us all over the interwebs. Also at any local Panera. Is that still your jam? I, Is that what you're, you're looking at right now? The cup yeah. right here. I feel like if I just keep saying their name, eventually They've they're going to they're gonna have to sponsor us. I told you. Guess what I had today? The turkey chili. Of course you The did. turkey chili. <laughs> what would you be willing to do in order to get them to sponsor you? I mean... Like would, you, like, would you wear just a Panera costume sure. five days a week? Sure. I'd bathe in the turkey chili if I needed wow, to. Wow, <laughs> that took a turn. I was not a t- I should really run these ideas by you before we go live. Uh, uh, that's going to get us a jumper right there. I mean, I think, 
you know. I'll be right in our kicker segment right there. Local radio host fired for weird comment about Panera Soup. Um, right. So so my buddy Aaron Nequist, who, uh, who I think just has a ton of wisdom in the area of uh, worship and liturgy. In fact, he, with a really incredible team, uh, launched what's called the practice that met in Willow Creek's chapel. Okay. So it was they were meeting in the round. In fact, when we started meeting in the round at Poplar Creek, uh, he was someone that actually spoke a lot yep. into me and our leadership and ways to kind of think through logistically and theologically. And he's written a whole bunch about sort of this worshiptainment yep. idea. Yep. You know, so meeting and, in the round means you're. It is what it sounds like. It, I'm just making sure people understand what we're talking about. It there. is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, yep. we're the, you know the uh, the center of the action was in the center of the room instead of a stage that everybody's facing. Right, right. and not, that's another important piece. There was intentionally no stage. Okay. So everything was on the same. Fl- so you know, it, it certainly does create some um, some functional hurdles, yep. some yep. issues to try to solve. But it also is so beautiful because you're you're looking at the people that you're yep. worshiping with. We were intentional about like actually not dimming the lights way down because. We believe that we should be celebrating the fact that this is a communal expression, gotcha. a communal experience, and not just this, you know, individual me and buddy Jesus. And I just look at the backs of the heads of the people around sure. me. I consume some media and then I go like I wrote an article years ago called um, uh, worship as theater or something like that. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was saying was that, you know, we our worship spaces often look like movie theaters and then we're upset when our people treat it like entertainment. Yep. I'm like everything in the environment says just come and be entertained yep. and then we talk, you know then you hear pastors talk about my, my people aren't being discipled yeah. and, uh, we don't formation isn't it's happening all about them and yeah everything you're developing though in your That's space is saying one thing so anyway he tweeted this a couple of days ago and i'm going to read the whole thread and then i want to get your reaction yeah. to this he says for almost 20 years as a worship leader i led services that were jam-packed with sound light stimulus and energy we turned the amps up to 11 and avoided quote dead space at all costs there's obviously nothing wrong with sound, lights, etc. But the more I learn about spiritual formation and now brain science, the more I think we're not giving people all they need. Who really shows up to church and says, I need more stimulation. <laughs> my life has been too still, too quiet, and my soul needs more flashing screens. Friends, are you regularly practicing silence in some form to set aside the crushing weight of the past and future and learning to open to the healing power this very moment? No matter where we are, God is here. To my pastor and worship leader friends, are we offering our community regular moments of silence and holy space? Are we helping them switch over from the exhaustion of the narrative brain network to the potential healing of the direct experience network? Or are we accidentally overwhelming the already overwhelmed? May our churches become sanctuaries that open us to God's presence in the here and now. Hmm. What do you think? In that last one, are we accidentally overwhelming the already overwhelmed? That's a powerful statement right there because... I do think most of our churches, uh, if you walked into them, at least my experience is that they are overwhelming. There are uh, there. They tend to be pretty loud. They tend to be pretty joy filled. And that's OK. Right. The joyfulness. But like, right. They're the upbeat might be the right word. Like you said, they're set up like uh, movie theaters. So there's a stage and, and kind of be entertained. And uh, you and I were joking before we started this going, hey, I think we both believe in the power of silence. But what is it actually What's it do to a church? Right. What, what does, uh, th- there's some positives, but what does it do when that visitor comes and it's like, this is a somber place. This is a right. quiet, what's going on here. And silence is uncomfortable. Yeah. Silence. Right. We've all done it, right? Like, Hey, bow your heads. Let's just take some time to think. And like 20 seconds later, you're like, all right, we're done with that. <laughs> yes. Right. Like silence, uh, the old saying, right? Silence is deafening. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it could be really hard, but I do think he's on to something here that, 
uh, that people aren't looking for more stimulation. Mm. At least if you really press them, they're not looking for more. Our whole lives are stimulated. It's everything is fast and noisy. Mm. Uh, And so therefore we probably wrongfully say, well, that's what people want out of church. When in reality, either that's all that they know uh, or we're just making some wrong assumptions. Well, and there's a couple of things I want to say too, before we go on, The, the practice is still going on. So that's right there in South Barrington. If you're ever free at Willow, to, at, at Willow in the okay. chapel there. Yeah. So if you're ever free on a, on a Sunday evening, I highly encourage you to check that out. And there's retreats and all sorts of resources. Aaron also just wrote a book called The Eternal Current, which like way more robustly unpacks all of this. So if you're hearing this and thinking, man, I'd love to, because this is someone who's led on some really big stages. Yeah. So he's in a lot of ways, professionally sort of achieved what he thought he wanted to achieve when he was 2021. 20, and then mm-hmm. realized that wasn't it just wasn't working for him. Yeah. So this yeah. idea of like silence and rest and pause, like I was just having a conversation with a friend earlier today when Poplar was really in a tailspin. Uh, one of the things that we challenged our church to do was to really kind of sit in silence. We, we mm. keep saying we want to hear God's voice and then we do all the talking, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I remember the first Sunday, I think it was the first Sunday as lead pastor, I said, I'm going to give three prayer prompts and just sort of like open it up for people to respond. And honestly, like embarrassingly, I thought this moment would last two, maybe three minutes. Mm. And it ended up lasting almost the entire service. Really? And it was, God, you are. God, thank you for. And God, would you please? Mm. And I would just prompt one and then I'd like step back and just, I could not believe. And people just prayed out loud. It was, yeah, it was beautiful. And it was really moving too because, you know, as a smaller church, you would recognize voices even if your eyes were closed. So you could hear, you know, when someone says, God, you are my provider. Yeah. You know, this is someone whose house just burned down or God, you are my protector. You know, this is someone who's in an abusive relationship. Yeah. You know, like there was this richness to it. And I thought, I don't ever create space yes. like this. We just yes. cross fade everything announcements into the bumper, into the message with underscore into the, and none of those things I think are, are bad, but I think Nico's point about, are we, are we overwhelming? Yeah. The already overwhelmed, I think is a really good question. So what were those three again? Uh, it was God, you are God, you are Yeah. God. Thank you for Okay. And God, would you please? I, I'm writing those down. Those are good. It was those really helpful good. for us. And we were just like in the season of desperation too. And, you know, Aaron, yep. Aaron has taken a much deeper dive into the liturgical traditions. And uh, Father Michael Sparrow, who's a Jesuit priest in the area, has kind of helped him better understand how our body connects to these things. Yep. And this idea of like a practice-based faith. They talk about the the unforced rhythms of grace. Is, uh, comes from a Eugene Peterson mm. transliteration. The, the idea that... Um, and in, in, a, in a noisy, loud world that's always taking and grasping, what does it look like to just simply pause and receive? Uh, you're right. It's very counterintuitive. And I think yeah. it's probably why it's so rare. Yeah. Why else do you think it's rare? Like you, mega churches, and not just a mega church. I like to say mega churches because then all the other churches kind of fall in line with them, right? They kind of, right. so it's not just the mega churches, right. but the small churches are doing this well. But usually the small churches kind of fall in line. And so um, if, if this is so powerful and... And the mega churches are usually at the front end of the wave. What mm. stops us from doing this? Big and small churches. What is it? Is it? Uh, yeah. What do you what, what do you think? I think there's a couple of things. I think silence is really unpredictable. I think mm. it is uncomfortable. That's a good way to put it. Unpredictable. Uh, I, I th- yeah. We can control everything else. I can control what key the song is. We have a click track. I know how long my message is. I've written out the manuscript. I've made slides that look the way that I want them to look. Silence could be anything, right? You yeah. think of I think of like even Elisha in the mountain, right? When he's uh, there's the earthquake and the fire and, but God was not in those things. He was in the sound of sheer yeah. silence. This, this still small voice. I know for me personally, I often run from silence cause I'm afraid of what I'm going to hear. Yeah. It's why as soon as I hop in my car, I'm cranking something on. Yep. I have headphones on when I work on my laptop. It's, there is something 
deep and innate that says, if I actually slow down long enough, I might actually hear some stuff in my heart and head that I actually don't want to hear. So I drown it out with more. And I think sometimes our churches reflect that, unfortunately. Yeah. And also like, you know, our services are so to the minute. They're so timed. Right. Right. Like you said, you, if you had written that down in your church, you would have been like, ah, five minutes for a group, you know, honestly, I think I still have the notes. That's about what I planned for. And then it just starts going and going and you're like, well, what do we do with this? And, And that's powerful. Um, I also think, like it said, there's not, uh, not, not many of us have much silence in our day-to-day lives, right. in our Monday to Saturday exactly, lives. Exactly, exactly. And that goes for pastors as well. So yes. I don't sit back and think about the Sunday service and go, hey, man, we really need some silence in here because I've benefited from so much silence this yes, week. right, like, right. It's just as much outside the box for us as it is for the congregant. Uh-huh. And I think that's also a big reason you probably don't see very much silence. Well, and we say around community a lot, too, the speed of the leader, speed of the team, yep. which is convicting when you're in a role of leadership. You're yep. like, wow, why don't our people embrace this or want to you know, entertain that? Like, well, what are you modeling for yep. them? You know, you, even just what little I admitted to you just now, like, oh. I'm not, it's one thing in a radio studio to talk about the need for it and the sacred significance of it. But yep. if Ian Simpkins really takes an inward, honest look at his own patterns and habits, 100%. there's not a lot of silence. There's not a lot of silence. Which I think actually segues pretty well. And what I want to talk about next, here's the headline. Uh, if churches can't satisfy people's hunger for truth, we can expect to see more Christians leave. That's coming mm. up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and John just gave the most polite of points. That oh, was nice. very Narnia of him. My back is to him, but I will, t- I will take your word for it, because I know he is, he is a polite pointer. It felt like how I imagine Mr. Tumnus would point. Mr. It Tumnus. It was sort of like, this way to the wardrobe, sir. <laughs> Whatever, that's not, that's not really a line. Did you want to weigh in here, John? I, I haven't seen the new line the Wits in the Wardrobe. There's a new, new one? Yeah, th- what do you mean there's a new, new one? I know there's... I mean, like from five years ago, right? Is yeah. that the one you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I've seen that one. Because there's okay. a new new one in the works that I think is set for Netflix, actually. Oh, Seriously? wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The... All I remember from like the movies is the way, I forget his name, Turkish Delight. Like you said, Turkish Edmund. Delight. Edmund. Edmund, yes. yes. Yeah, I just wanted to slap him the whole time. It's like, well, that's still... what the author wanted you to I feel. Know. That's right. Have you seen the BBC version from a few decades ago? No. You need to look that up. Get some close friends around you and prepare to laugh. It is. Is that the one where the lion just opens his mouth when he talks? <laughs> yeah, it's just sort of like on a rhythmic. His mouth is like more on a metronome. Right. So it doesn't matter how many syllables. It's just, it's a weird mechanic. It was actually like a creature from Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, the I Chuck E. Cheese band. Not an actual lion, but all they could do is make him open his mouth and close his mouth. Uh, is that what it was? Just, yeah. yeah. It's worth watching. Go, go ahead and take a look. Have you yet taken your child to Chuck E. Cheese, by the way? Are you that age yet? No, I don't think. I don't know that I ever will. Oh, it's a rite of passage. It doesn't it's have to be, r- though. Yes. You said that about Disney, and I don't is, think I'm going to do that. This is much cheaper. This is going <laughs> to be a hill to die on See, this one. Chuck E. Cheese, though, there was one in my hometown right outside Detroit, and I remember like when the curtain came up, and because it was sort of like a low-income Chuck E. Cheese, like one of the bear's eyes was missing, <laughs> and another one of the animal's like hand, the, the flesh part was gone, so it was just like a metal hinge. It was like a nightmare. I still have... In fact, <laughs> this is we're going to run out of time. There's a guy on YouTube, actually, that bought uh, an entire Chuck E. Cheese band, there was like a Chuck E. Cheese in his town that was closing. So he bought the whole mechanical band. No and way. then he programs like death metal songs and then films the band playing these death metal songs. And it is, Brian Fromm is not as interested in those. No, I that's thought it, fascinating. I thought, I thought it was going to be. Do you know what story I just thought of? I believe I have this right. Someone could fact check us on this. Francis Chan, 
when he planted his church that uh, Cornerstone, I think, mm-hmm. either their first or second place that they met was in a Chuck E. Cheese on Sunday mornings. It's a miracle that she <laughs> had imagine? any success. Oh, I'm no. going to be the no, Chuck E. Cheese. So distracting. <laughs> that was like their stained glass was he just the mechanical band. band right there. <laughs> <laughs> they actually wore the Chuck E. Cheese outfits. Super weird. Not uh, at all. This may be somehow come full circle for us. Uh, here's the headline. If churches can't satisfy people's hunger for truth, we can expect to see more Christians leave. Let me kind of read a little bit of the intro here and then uh, get your reaction. Yep. Marty Sampson, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, who has been a worship leader since the 90s, has said his faith is on incredibly shaky ground. Marty Sampson, the Hillsong worship leader, is only the latest prominent Christian to be on the brink of leaving his church, having said he is, quote, losing his faith, but not renounced it completely yet. Uh, he has cited various factors, as others do too, but there's one issue that stands out. It's not that they cease to be seekers after truth, nor that they necessarily cease to be Christian. Rather, is that the church ceases to be the place where they believe they can find this truth. They lose confidence in faith-based organizations. Mm. I'm going to pause there and just kind of get your reaction to that. Uh, that's a challenging one. That is a convicting one as pastors who lead organizations and churches, right? Or, yeah, I always feel at least somewhat convicted. Now, his post was a little bit like yep. he would like state an issue and then you go, no one's talking about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, another, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I know a lot of people talking yeah. about these things. But getting off of him, this article is basically saying that not everybody who leaves churches is doing it because, you know, they're selfish or they're this. Or that, right, but, right. That in fact, this author uh, tries to say that uh, on some level, people leave churches to kind of reconnect with the source to kind of uh-huh. find Jesus. And that's really convicting as somebody who leads a church and really wants that church to be a vehicle for people to meet Jesus and grow in Christ, uh, to say that sometimes churches are an impediment uh, to to knowing Jesus and following him is, is a convicting thought to have. What, what are the ways that you think the church can sometimes impede others' ability to truly meet the actual risen Christ? I think when when church leaders get really power hungry, which we've seen happening when there's a lot of power going on, uh, when there seems to be manipulation going on, I think when churches get really political, and I don't just mean politics of our nation. I mean, uh, you know, every you always hear the jokes about church politics. Mm. Uh, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. We all laugh at it because that's how churches often are. Uh, and so I do think, especially the more idealistic people out there who are like when they butt up against churches and people are saying things like, well, that's just how churches are. It could become a really cynical thing. It could become something that can cause you to lose heart. Uh, and so I think when you start seeing leaders, uh, obviously nobody expects their leaders to be perfect, but when you start seeing leaders modeling a lifestyle that is not uh, mirroring that of Jesus, when you see the community that is gathered not looking different from the culture, I, I could see how people get really jaded and say, I'm out of this whole church thing while I'm still in Team Jesus. I'm still in the Jesus right. thing. Well, it's a lot of what we actually talked about last Sunday and are continuing to talk about this Sunday is this. We talked about the bounded set versus the centered set. Yeah. The bounded set is sort of like cross the boundary line, meet the minimum requirements, and you're in. Where a centered set is a life dedicated to following, heading towards Jesus. We call it yep. apprenticeship, discipleship. And this Sunday, we're going to talk more about that. What does it actually mean to not mm. just pray a prayer, check a box? Yeah. Even important things like be baptized, but to actually say, All right, I'm dying to myself and I'm going to follow this rabbi Jesus. And even if I'm stumbling along the way, I'm I'm heading in this direction. That's, I think a fair definition of formation Yeah, when I think a lot of people, and maybe people can be unfairly critical of churches and church people because they're not perfect. You know, they don't meet their expectations, but I know a a lot of people when they tell me their story as to why they left, my thought usually is 
I don't blame you for leaving. That makes sense, right? You know what I mean? Like, right. I, I, you really get a sense of what they saw or experienced. Or like, yeah, I would have gotten out too, to yep. be honest. Yep. And that, I think, is sometimes freeing for people to to at least even hear. Yep. It's not totally unthinkable that you would walk away from that. But and I would like to think the answer is I'm going to leave that toxic situation or that kind of misrepresentation of Jesus. I'm going to get in another church. Yeah. Some people do that. Yeah. But some people go, I gave the church thing a shot. And the whole church thing is flawed. And, right. and I think you, you can understand how both of those reactions end up coming, taking place. Well, I think, too, what you were saying earlier about people not feeling like their questions are valid or heard or if they if people know that they're kind of being given a pat answer yeah. or some sort of quick fix, you know, if they're being dismissed. Uh, I think people also sense that, too. Like, I, I think we need to we need to be more. Uh, present to understand the deep complexity of people's challenges, their yeah. deconstruction. And if all we have for them is a verse out of context and a pamphlet, I think people are going to say, well, then there's, I, I'm going to go to the source. Like you were saying, like, yep. that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Here, yep. Here's how the article ends. It says church institutions feel under threat in the modern world. They're used to having status in Western societies. They feel they must play a part in the local secular community. The risk is that they forget their primary goal to foster the personal transformation that opens uh, what Jesus called the eyes that see and the mm. ears that hear. In other words, they're so focused on the kingdom of this world that they forget the heavenly kingdom. Yeah. And I think that's actually way easier to do than people realize. Yeah. Yeah. It totally is. Like I, I, I be having been a part of churches for so long and leading churches, you begin to realize how you can get a little bit off course. Oh, you, totally. you totally get it. Like, you know, it's easy to be the idealist outside of it going like, throwing, oh, throwing stones. Right. once you're in it, you get it. I, I basically said that to our church this week. I kind of uh, said, hey, you know, I've been trying to plug holes for a while here, but that, that we haven't been dreaming and, and like praying bold prayers. But we're going to get back to that. Right. And I, I think people give latitude to leaders in the churches to say like, hey, we might have been off right here, but now we're, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, I guess my I would want to tell people who are feeling pretty jaded towards the church out there like. We get it. And to, to, I guess I want to encourage you, like whether it's at your current church or, or getting involved in another church, like keep, the church is important. Like keep being a part of it. Don't give up on it. Yeah. As we acknowledge, it could be a mess sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the truth is, it's been a mess for a long time. Absolutely. Like, this isn't a new modern development. And I think it was Spurgeon who said the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The, mm. the goal is never for you to just, I'm going to leave and go figure this out on my, on my yep. own by myself. It's just me and Jesus. It's at community. It's in the context of communitas doing life together that we meet and encounter Jesus together. Yeah. And I, I think just, just, we can't just simply say, Oh, the church is important. It's a good thing to add. It's good like, well, that's, that's central. I think to what it means to be a Christ follower, which like you were saying, Sometimes it means living messy life with messy people. Yes. And that can sometimes be really, really heartbreaking. But also there's, I think, a lot of beauty in that. Mm. Well, coming up next, we're going to close up shop the way that we always do with a little bit of interweb insanity stuff from the Internet that our producers have found that we have not yet seen. I'm a little terrified, more so than usual. So uh, we're going to take a deep dive into all of that with all of you. Pray for us. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. That 
wacky and wild music. I don't know. Wacky. <laughs> so now I'm just like talking more like a grandpa every single day. Wow, this this haberdashery can mean only one thing. Uh, it's the end of the show. It's also like a cowboy, though. You're kind of like that. Mm. Uh, like in those old cartoons, you kind of talk about how the older cowboy would talk. I mean, I'm not opposed to heading in that direction. It's not a bad way to go. If people talk of me in my 80s and 90s like, you know Ian, he's kind of that old cowboy guy that lives in the cul-de-sac. Yeah, yeah, that's him. The one that's always wearing the chaps. cowboy. Yeah. All right, so again, there's stories we've never seen before and sound effects we've never heard, and uh, they're always just a little bit terrifying. <laughs> Brian Fromm flipped it over, yeah, and then back, back and then me. back. <laughs> so why don't you kick us off? Missouri. A woman with PTSD fights a Missouri city law to keep three emotional support monkeys. Wow. A Missouri woman and her doctor say her three emotional support monkeys are vital to her mental well-being, but, neighbor, but her neighbors worry the primates are dangerous. Mm. Texan McBride Tehan lives in Creve Corps, uh, Missouri, with three monkeys, which are all registered as emotional support animals to help her with post-traumatic stress disorder. They're not dangerous animals. They're trained. They assist me. I have PTSD because of something that happened to me, a very bad thing that oh. happened a long time ago. Oh, boy. Uh, she says she has lived and trained with monkeys for 20 years, and it wasn't until she moved here a month ago that a neighbor complained. The neighbor who saw one of the monkeys outside was worried about it attacking and called the city. Neighbors are so concerned about the monkeys that they brought up the issue at Monday's city council, forcing McBride Tehan to uh, defend them. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a monkey. You always wanted a monkey. Yeah, there, there it is. Can you okay. name that band? You can name that band. Oh, I can tell what it is. Give me a moment. Go ahead, read the next one. While you think. think you're going to get it later in the show? Bare naked ladies. There you go. Yes. You're not allowed to say that on the radio. I though. did. New York, man in custody after a swinging sword on Empire State Building huh? observation deck. Why? Why? Just why? The 35-year-old man was able to get to the observation deck at the Empire State Building on Friday afternoon and began swinging what appeared to be a sword. Mm. Matthew Dixon of Virginia was quickly placed in custody. No one inside the Empire State Building was injured. Police say the sword may have been concealed within a cane, but it is still unclear how Dixon got past metal detectors. Hmm, maybe he's a wizard. (laughs) Dixon was taken to Bellevue Hospital for observation. He was charged with criminal possession of a weapon. There can be only one! (laughs) That's... He-Man, right? Uh, was it? Or no? Is it He-Man? No. What is it? I don't know. Highlander. I have no idea. Highlander. Okay. Highlander. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Next one's out of Virginia. Yak on ride to butcher shop escapes to Virginia mountains. Authorities in Virginia say a yak on its way to the butcher's shop escaped to the nearby mountains, avoiding animal control officers and treats trying to lure it back into a trailer. Hmm. Uh, The news in advance reports the yak named Meteor was on its last ride Tuesday to the butcher when it got out of its trailer. The escape was called in as livestock on the loose. And Nelson County Animal Control Officer says he figured he was looking for a cow. Wright says the yak crossed a busy highway and avoided officers trying to capture it by heading for the mountains. The yak was last spotted Wednesday at an inn where the owners tried unsuccessfully to lure it into a trailer using treats. Born free, as free <laughs> as the wind blows. So weird. This is weird. As Probably the weirdest part was that he was named Meteor, right? That's, <laughs> that's, that, that's that he, the weirdest part of the story. Or that a yak went to an inn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, want to, I want to be a yak. Okay, so I saw this somewhere. Australia. Uh, KFC is offering couples chicken-themed weddings. Nothing says I love you like 11 herbs and spices. Mm-hmm. Couple, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> True. Couple, yeah, accurate. Couples in Australia looking to get married. 
by next spring have the opportunity to have a Kentucky Fried Wedding. This includes food, decoration, and more supplied by KFC. KFC Australia announced that they'll be offering the Chicken Lovers Dream Wedding to six couples. Fox 6 report lovers looking to tie the knot by May 2020 can apply to be one of the lucky recipients. In a press release obtained by Fox News, KFC Australia states the, the chain is all about living your best life. Is this fall in line with living your best life? <laughs> I, th- I think not. Along with getting to smash freshly cooked Kentucky Fried Chicken, courtesy of the KFC food truck, the happy couple will also get a KFC-themed celebrant to make it all official, a KFC photo booth to capture those happy memories, custom KFC buckets, and musical entertainment to get the first dance kicked off in true style. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? That. Sometimes as pastors, we think that weddings are such a... are such holy occasions. Mm. <laughs> and then you read articles like this. You're like, well, maybe we're in the minority. <laughs> hey, there's the KFC officiant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's got a real ordination certificate. Oh, man. Texas Airbnb renter finds snake inside toilet of Texas home. No, no, A no. renter at an Airbnb in Texas captured video of an unexpected discovery inside the home. A snake in the bowl of the toilet. The filmer said the four-foot snake was found inside the toilet of the Houston area home they rented using the accommodation finding app. The renter said animal control was summoned to remove the snake. The origins of the reptile were unknown. A Tennessee woman made a similarly unwelcome discovery in July when she opened the lid of her toilet and found a small snake swimming oh, inside. Gosh, darn it. Experts said the serpent in the footage shared by Kristen Kiefert appeared to show a garter snake, a common species that is not venomous or dangerous. Enough is enough. No. I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes yep. on this Monday to Friday plane. I mean, we yep. could have guessed that, yep. right? That's yep. Listen, I love, how, week. I love how it includes, though, not venomous or dangerous, as if that's supposed to somehow... Temper our reaction, right? Like if you found oh, a then snake, I'll use the bathroom now. Oh, right, no, no big deal. As long as it's not venomous or dangerous. Thanks so much, anonymous source. My gosh. Well, never a dull moment here at the Common Good. Thanks for being here, Brian. I, I wouldn't be anywhere else. <laughs> I almost believed you. Uh, join us tomorrow and every day from four to six p.m. right here on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.